Now, if you remember uh, back in Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch uh, commissioned Paul and Barnabas and sent them out as missionaries. And Paul and Barnabas first uh, went to proclaim the gospel at Cyprus. And after Cyprus, they moved inland. Eventually, they reached the regions of Galatia. And their labors of proclaiming God's word and proclaiming the gospel was fruitful. As many as were appointed by God to eternal life believed. But while their labors were very fruitful, their labors were also very difficult. Everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, they were threatened of physical harm and violence until as we read last week in chapter 14, Paul was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. But we also saw that Paul and Barnabas, they endured the external hostilities from the unbelievers with faithfulness, with perseverance, and they served the Lord with such distinction that we saw in them such admirable examples of faithfulness and God's blessing. And at the end of chapter 14, we saw that, that Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch from which they were sent out as missionaries. And this chapter 15, it picks up where we left up in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, but at Antioch, a new threat emerged. And this new threat was not violence from the opponents of the gospel. Rather, the threat came from those who claimed to be uh, friends and supporters of the gospel. And so the first thing we see is the gospel under attack. The gospel under attack. So in chapter 15, verse 1, we read, But some some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now what's important for us to recognize is that Acts 15, which we are reading here, And Paul's letter to the Galatians are intimately connected uh, because the arrival of these men from Judea caused a great dissension about the very meaning of the gospel. And in turn, the Antioch church appointed Paul and Barnabas to go up to Jerusalem and to consult with the apostles and the elders about this question. And Paul wrote Galatians on his way to consult with the Jerusalem leaders about this very controversy in Acts chapter 15. And that is why the controversies that we are reading in Acts chapter 15 and Paul's letter to the Galatians are intimately related. And when we look at the two Uh, writings together, we can arrive at a more of a fuller picture of what is uh, taking place. 
And in, in fact, if we read Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, there Paul writes, certain men came from James. Now, uh, if we read Acts chapter 15, verse 24, this is the passage that we will look at next week, Lord willing. But if we look at verse 24, James writes there, Some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. You see, James did not send them. But these men, uh, they name-dropped them in order to lend an air of authenticity to their teachings. You know, this is nothing new. <laughs> you know, even today, uh, if you want to be taken seriously for what you're saying, you need to quote an authority. So today, people might say, you know, so-and-so said this, and you know, Augustine said this, Luther said this, Calvin said this. And that's what you do if you want to lend an air of authenticity to what you're saying. And that's what these people did. They came from Judea. They claimed to be uh, sent by James, but James did not send them. They were just name-dropping him. And the reason is that these men, they could not accept the fact that the Gentiles have come to believe in the God of their fathers. And they were now numbered among God's covenant people while they remain uncircumcised. Now, what's the issue? Why is that the big deal? Now, notice uh, it is true they only mention circumcision. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's true they only mention circumcision, but the situation and the issue becomes a little bit more clear uh, in a few verses later because circumcision for the Jewish people was not just one thing. Circumcision for the Jewish people was the very summary of the entire law of Moses. And circumcision represented for them a lifestyle that was particularly defined by uh, keeping the law. And that becomes very clear in verse 5 when the delegates from Antioch arrive in Jerusalem some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, that's the issue. They were telling the Gentile believers that faith, faith alone does not save them from God's wrath, from God's judgment, and from the curse of sin. And they were telling the Gentile believers, if you really want to be saved, you have to add to your faith circumcision. And if you really want to be saved, you have to add to circumcision the obedience to the whole law. So what are they saying? They are saying, what Jesus started, Moses must finish. When Jesus says it, said it is done on the cross, never mind that because it's not really done. Faith is just the beginning. But if you really want to be saved, this is what you have to do. Be circumcised. And of course that means be committed to a lifestyle of obeying all of God's law. 
Now, can you see? Can you see what an enormous issue this was? And can you see also how you know there's Satan's schemes behind it? Satan opposed the proclamation of the gospel with physical violence, but realized that the proclamation of the good news could not be stopped with threats and with violence. And so what does he do? He is corrupting the very meaning of the gospel from within the church, telling them what Jesus started, you have to finish. Did Jesus say it was done? Never mind that, he was wrong. The very gospel was at stake. And so that's the first thing we see, the gospel under attack. Next, we see the defense of the gospel. Now, as you can imagine, the false teachings caused a very painful division in the church at Antioch and surrounding areas. So much so that uh, actually the situation is actually a little bit more uh, intense and painful than we can gather from Luke chapter 15 alone. Because if we read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, this is what Paul says about the situation. But when Cephas came, when Peter came to Antioch, Peter was there when this controversy was taking place. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter, the very one who heard the voice of the Lord saying to him about the Gentiles, what I have cleansed, do not consider unclean. That Peter, who with his very eyes, when he went to the Gentile Cornelius' household, saw their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and how the Lord granted them the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Peter and Barnabas, who was Paul's missionary partner, who went around the regions of Galatia preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and saw with his own eyes the powerful things that the Lord did to the Gentiles when they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and Barnabas caved to the pressure and they no longer acknowledged the uncircumcised Gentiles as true believers. And when they fell, the rest of the Jews began to follow their examples. Now, Luke, Luke wrote Acts some years after this controversy, when this was uh, in many ways in the rear view for, uh, mirror uh, for him. And I think we see here that Luke is... Uh, respectfully reluctant to mention the failings of Peter and Barnabas 
And of course, Peter and Barnabas were the, the beloved leaders of the church. And I wouldn't be surprised to discover that Peter and Barnabas were Luke's personal heroes. And so, writing some years after the controversy, Luke seems reluctant to mention the failings of Peter and Barnabas, especially since by the time Luke was writing Acts, uh, both Peter and Barnabas had long repented of their sins. And I think there is something very kind and something very gracious about Luke's forgetfulness, not to remember, not to not to rehash the failings of the past, especially in light of the fact that these two men had already repented and by their lives demonstrated that their repentance was true. But Paul's reaction is happening in real time as the controversy is unfolding. And so what we read in Galatians is Paul right in the middle of the controversy, in his great anguish over the corruption of the gospel, and as a faithful shepherd who was entrusted with the care of the souls, he confronted Peter to his face publicly, even calling him a hypocrite. Now you might say, you know, that's just been quarrelsome. That's just being argumentative. No, it's true. First uh, Timothy chapter three, Paul writes that the overseer must not be quarrelsome or be argumentative. Now, sadly, I've met many seminary students and some pastors who think being quarrelsome is what qualifies them for ministry. Um, in f- fact, of the matter is that if you are quarrelsome, if you are overly argumentative that actually disqualifies you from ministry. And brothers should earnestly pursue peace. And I think we need to take that to heart. But John Calvin, as he usually does, put it this way and very wisely, very insightfully. Calvin commenting on this passage and Paul's reaction to Peter writes, it is a cursed peace that is gained at the cost of Christ's teaching, by which alone we grow together into godly and holy unity. You see, we have seen for several centuries people giving up on truth for the sake of unity. They said theology, doctrine divides, what matters is unity. But there is such a thing as a cursed peace and cursed unity because no one ever unites around the concept of unity. We are united by the truth of who Jesus is, his gospel. And that is why Paul, he confronted a dear brother. He didn't do it gleefully, happy that this man has stumbled, happy to point out his failings. And Paul confronted him without personal animosity, but because it was his duty. And that's, that is what defending the gospel sometimes requires, to confront the people, even if they should be the people that you love and respect. Not because you are eager to uncover their failings, but because so much is at stake. 
the souls of people, the very meaning of the gospel. And so Paul defended the gospel, which brings us to the third and the last point, the gospel recovered, the gospel recovered. Notice how the Antioch church appointed Paul and Barnabas to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. Um, By the way, I don't have the time to really develop this right now. Perhaps Lord willing next week. Last week we saw how it was God's will that each, every Christian belongs to elder-led local churches. Uh, but these churches don't function in an independent way. When great controversies rise, there is a mutual submission and consulting of wisdom in the body of Christ outside the local church. Um, that's something that we have codified into the Presbyterian form of the government, this local church led by elders, we are mutually accountable to and we depend on a wider body of Christ. Lord willing, perhaps we will develop this next week. But here, notice that the Antioch church commissioned Paul and Barnabas and others. And when in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders were gathered, after much discussion, Peter, Peter stood up to speak. And Peter said, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Do you realize what you are reading, what you are hearing? Paul rebuked him. And Paul's rebuke not only exposed the dangers of soul-destroying false teachings, but Paul's rebukes also brought Peter back to the true gospel. And that's why Peter continues, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, to the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did, To us. And what Peter is saying is this, isn't it? Who are we? How dare we question the salvation of the uncircumcised Gentiles? God Himself bore witness and God Himself bore testimony to their faith when He granted them the spirit of adoption. And Peter continues that God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, circumcision is all about cleansing. The cutting away of the flesh reminded the Jewish people that unless their hearts were cleansed by faith, like Abraham their father, who was justified by faith and accepted by God because of his faith while he was uncircumcised. So every Jewish male was reminded that unless their hearts were cleansed by faith as Abraham, Abraham, that they will be cut off from God. That was the point and the purpose of circumcision, to remind every Jewish person, unless my heart 
is cleansed, as Father Abraham was, who, before he was circumcised, he trusted in God's promises, and by faith he was declared righteous before God. Unless I have that faith of Abraham, then I will be cut off from God. And that is why if we read, for example, places like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, we see the Lord saying, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Why circumcision is something that points out the necessity of the cleansing of the heart. And then Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God. Now, do you see that circumcision is all about cleansing? Circumcision pointed out the need for cleansing of the heart, but the act itself could not and did not cleanse the heart. But what does Peter say? Peter says, God cleansed their hearts by faith. You see, the Jews, uh, they were boasting of the mere sign that pointed to the greater reality. But these Gentile believers, with their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and with Jesus' blood and righteousness covering them, they were cleansed in their hearts. What circumcision was pointing to, the Gentiles had by faith. Circumcision was mere a shadow and a sign, whereas the cleansing of the heart was the reality. But if that's the case, what is the purpose of the law? So Peter continues, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, notice what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that a, a great villain like King Nebuchadnezzar or, or, or what have you, some Gentile heathen failed to keep God's law. What Peter is saying is that there are most spiritual and godly people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and Jesus' own hand-picked apostles could not keep the law. You see, if I can put it in today's terms, I don't know who the villain of our culture is today. He's not, uh, Peter is not saying, you know, it's not people like, I don't know, Hugh Hefner that failed to keep the law. But it's the people that you think are the most spiritual, most moral people, like Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. It's people like that that failed to keep the law. And Peter is saying, Why? Why are we putting a yoke on them that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Because you see, the purpose of the law is not to teach us that we can manage our sin problems with a good life. But the purpose of the law is to teach us that we need God's mercy. That is why Peter says, but we believe 
that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jew or Gentile, educated or not, whether you are regarded as a respectable member of a society or you, you are regarded as the dregs of society, we all fail God's standard. And the law drives us to seek God's grace in Jesus. And it is Jesus who saves us from God's wrath, from his judgment, and from the curse of the law and of sin. How can I be saved? How can you be saved? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, death, his resurrection, and his righteousness are given to you as your covering and his blood washes your sins away. And this is the exhilarating good news. Cling to it. Don't ever let go of it. And this is the treasure that God has entrusted to you. Defend it. Defend it for the sake of your soul and defend it for the sake of your children and their, their children. And most of all, let no one and let nothing take our eyes off of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that sustains your church, the mercy that safeguards the gospel, and the faithful people, both men and women, that you have raised throughout church history to preserve and to pass on this message of good news. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the grace that we may cling to it, that we may treasure it and defend it, and live in the confidence and the joy of the love of Jesus Christ in which our sins are forgiven and we are made whole. And we praise and honor the Lord Jesus this morning. Amen.